Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Podcast, Episode 3. I'm Chris Webster. And I'm April Camp Whitaker. On today's show, we are talking to Dr. Bonnie Clark at the University of Denver about her work at Amachi, a World War II Japanese-American internment camp. Let's dig a little deeper. Clark of the University of Denver in Denver, Colorado. And she's going to be talking with us about her work and research at Amachi, which is a World War II Japanese internment camp. And this is a project that's very near and dear to my own heart uh, because this is where I did my master's research and is now part of my dissertation work. So we're really happy to have you with us here today, Bonnie. Well, I'm, it's an honor to be part of this, so I'm excited. And could you just start out by giving us a short overview of what is Japanese internment? Well, it is, well, first off, an unfortunate and shameful incident in um, American history. Certainly it's that. Um, but essentially, uh, there's a, a longstanding uh, sort of uh, distrust of people of Asian um, origin in the United States. And um, we see that first with the immigration and then subsequent um, closing of the door to Chinese immigrants and sort of the irony of Japanese immigration to the United States is that it really was in many ways made possible by the exclusion of another Asian group, which is the Asian, the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was passed in the 1880s. That's about the same time that Japan is, is modernizing and people are starting to immigrate um, to the United States as well as other areas, particularly into Hawaii, which at that point was a territory. And so um, with the bombing of Pearl Harbor, this kind of general anti-Asian sentiment really focuses and flares on Japanese Americans. And there is a concern that, um, that Japanese might, be, um, might act as spies, uh, the Japanese Americans in the United States might act as spies. And so, um, there is, and that that furor is really flamed, inflamed by um, certain newspapers, by uh, union groups, some of them, uh, certainly politicians who kind of, in some ways, almost use this as an excuse to do something they've been trying to do for a long time, which is to try to get the Japanese out of the, um, away from the West Coast of the U.S., and particularly in California, where they had become quite successful 
um, at farming on land that other people were not interested in. And so um, there is, um, right after Pearl Harbor in February, um, uh, uh, Roosevelt signs what's called Executive Order uh, 9066. And what it does is it gives the war authority um, uh, the right to, rem to remove and from for an unstated amount of time anyone who might be seen as a danger. And so what's interesting is that it doesn't say anything about Japanese Americans in the executive order, but it's pretty clear that that's who's going to be the target of it. And so they, um, the, the west half of uh, the coastal states, so Washington, Oregon, California, and then the southern half of Arizona are um, designated as exclusion zones. And um, then there's a sort of time of voluntary relocation where Japanese Americans can leave, but most of them, you know, they don't have the resources or they're elderly, um, they've got farms to take care of. And so um, they're, the, the army shifts and they do a forced evacuation. And then once it becomes clear that in the interior of the US, those governors don't want folks just being able to resettle is that they realize that they're not only gonna to have to remove them, that they're gonna to have to incarcerate them, that they're gonna to need to be in these facilities. And so that's what Amachi is. It's one of the 10, what's called the War Relocation Authority. It was a civil authority that was in charge of the relocation and the confinement. And so there are 10 of these camps um, it, throughout the Western US and one of them is located in Southeastern Colorado. And that's where um, I've been doing the work uh, since 2008. Yeah, Bonnie, I got a quick question for you while we were talking about how these things came about. Um, was there ever a recorded uh, instance of a Japanese-American doing something, I don't know, what they would have considered un-American to give them a reason to, you know, even one person to give somebody in the government a reason to say, yeah, we're doing this? Or was it just 100% fear-mongering kind of stuff? Uh, it was really pretty much 100% fear-mongering. In right. fact, the, the fact that no, there was no what they call fifth column activity, meaning no espionage, um, was used against them to say, well, then they're just waiting for the right moment. And um, it's a case where, where different um, agencies argued because particularly the, uh, the Army intelligence and the Naval intelligence in particular suggested that, that so both first generation Japanese as well as second generation, mm. so those who are born in the U.S. and who are citizens, which is two thirds of the population at that time, were were more patriotic than many of their neighbors. Um, they were very committed to the United States, and so um, the and they realized that the war authority. I mean, some of the folks in the in the Department of War really realized that this would actually have an adverse impact on their ability to fight the war because the Japanese, you know, almost half of uh, Japanese Americans were involved in agriculture and food was incredibly important during the war to feed the troops as well as to make munitions. Um, you've also got the fact that here are the people who actually know how to speak and read Japanese. You need them on your side. And so there was a real division, but the, those voices, caught those voices that were whipping up kind of fear um, and building on existing resentment just drowned out pretty much anybody else. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, how did you get uh, how did you get interested in Amache? What got you over there? Well, I was a relatively new here at the University of Denver, 
And I happened to read, uh, it was a report done by um, a cultural resources management firm who'd been hired by a group of former internees to do a kind of reconnaissance level survey at Amachi. And that was in part driven by the fact that it was had been placed on the National Register and there was some thought that it might be um, appropriate for it to be a National Historic Landmark, which is, you know, the recognition, the highest recognition for a historic site in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that I, I read through that report and I was just amazed by, you know, given that context that I just talked about, that people are being incarcerated because they're not American enough that what we find are Japanese ceramics, that we find things like um, traditional style Japanese gardens. And um, so I was really interested in um, that. And that that ties into my kind of longstanding interest in how people live out their identity, and particularly when that identity is under siege. And so I saw this as a really great opportunity to look at um, a really interesting from a kind of theoretical point of view, mm-hmm. um, as well as a site that was about to become a national historic landmark, which was almost certainly going to um, mean more people, which means more impact to the archaeology. And so I wanted to kind of get in on the ground floor with the hopes that archaeology could really be well integrated into the interpretation that happens there, as well as the um, efforts at preservation and site development. And I think that has really uh, come to bear. Okay. So Bonnie, you've been working at Amati since 2008. So what are you doing there currently? How does, how does the research you're doing work? Well, so what we've done is, and it's kind of evolved over the, over the years, but essentially we have a biannual field school. So we hold it every other year. And that field school is kind of the linchpin of the project, but the project is ongoing. So the field school involves going down to Amachi and working there as well as the associated museum. And so we do archaeology in the morning, and then we do we help um, the local museum, which is actually run by a volunteer organization staffed largely by high school students um, to help manage the collections, the really important collections that are related to the camp. And so... Um, we're down there for about a month. We, we live in the town of Grenada, which is about just over a mile away from the camp, and they're really key. Uh, and so this is, it's a community collaborative field school. So we have members of the local community who work with us, uh, mostly these high school students. Uh, we also work with um, the uh, high schoolers who are descendants of people who were at Amachi. And then we also have volunteers who were are either former internees themselves or their descendants, and they work with us as volunteers and are really critical to that. So that um, field school happens, and it's a very intensive uh, research um, that is. Uh, I have a kind of ongoing interest in the in landscape and in the gardens at Amachi. I'm actually working on a manuscript on that right now, and then we also. Uh, incorporate in graduate student research. So we have an MA program here at the University of Denver, and every field season we've had at least one student, um, including that that very first year, April, uh, doing their uh, thesis research there. So that's also incorporated into our research design, as is um, uh, when we know there's going to be some kind of impact related to site development. For example, uh, there's several uh, structures that have been reconstructed 
and we um, do our we we basically do section 106 clearance of those section of those parts of the camp while we're doing this kind of other um, uh, in, engaged research. And then once the field school is done, those items that we've collected come back to DU, where then I teach with them in my historical archaeology class, and the students in that class do the artifact analysis and do the data entry on them. And then um, I also teach a class um, where my students work with community members and they co-curate these objects and do um, an exhibit. So we've got a traveling exhibit um, that will hopefully soon also be an online one. And so um, the project lives in, in lots of these different ways. Um, we also make sure that we are continually having a conversation with the sort of widespread um, descendant community and, and survivor community, which is largely in California because that's where people came from. So we're often going to California to talk to people, to do research, um, just to check in with them and make sure we're all heading in a direction that we all agree with. Okay. You know, one thing you said um, in there, and I just want to clear this up a little bit, you mentioned that, um, you know, survivors and descendants come and help out in, in Grenada. They don't still live in Grenada, right? They weren't, they didn't stay there after the camp closed. They're, they're coming in from other places. For the most part, but there, there is, um, there were a few people who stayed in the Arkansas Valley um, and one gentleman in particular who still lives there, although he's quite elderly, mm -hmm. um, so he's never volunteered with us. All our volunteers have come in um, from other places, um, but there was um, a population that did stay and a number who moved from camp to Denver. And so I work a lot because I'm here. I work a lot with the folks in Denver who have an Amache connection as well. Hmm. Okay. All right, cool. Um, well, what do you see this, uh, how do you see this as, um, I guess, important or interesting to a broader audience? Like why, what, what can we learn from Amache? Well, you know, there's really <laughs> a, so many things. It's hard to know where to begin. I think one is to think about the fact that um, it, it's really interesting to see the way that people are invested in places. You know, prisons are, and that's where my work really ties into the work that's done at other sort of sites of institutional confinement, is that, you know, nobody wanted to live at Amachi, and yet they took what was really this bare scraped earth of a military facility, and they turned it into a town mm -hmm. with sidewalks and parks and trees and ball fields and a sumo pit and, um, and literally hundreds of gardens. And so I think it helps us think about the importance of placemaking, which is, you know, a really important anthropological topic. Um, that specificity of the Japanese garden, you know, people love Japanese gardens and there's a good reason for them. They are, you know, over a, a thousand years in the making in terms of their um, philosophy and a kind of refined sense of aesthetics and a relationship to nature. And so people are really interested in the gardens at the camp. Um, I think that obviously we are still as a country struggling with how to understand where immigrants fit in, how they fit in, do they fit in, and especially when we have a racial element to that. Um, those questions about who belongs and who doesn't and what happens when we let the balance between 
um, sort of national security and individual justice um, get out of balance? Like, what are the consequences of that? And so I think, you know, this research could not be more timely. Okay. Cool. So I'm wondering, you, you mentioned, you know, the Japanese gardens that they made and stuff like that. And we um, visited, uh, me and my friend Michael, of course, as you know, we visited Amache out in uh, June. And when you guys were there, and I was kind of amazed at some of the stuff that, I mean, even just the archaeological remnants, you could tell some of the things that they had done and constructed there. How much uh, freedom, for lack of a better word, did the government give them uh, to, to do stuff like that? I mean, aside from moving and, and, and leaving there, um, how much how much could they do to the place to kind of personalize it and make it their own? What what you know, do, do we have records on that or what they were allowed to do and what they weren't allowed to do? Well, there's not a whole lot of records about that. Um, mm. But essentially, they were that sort of especially that space the the the, the camp once you get into the area where the internees lived, they had they kind of had free reign. And in fact, you know, the police force at the camp was a volunteer force of internees themselves. They were self-policing. Oh. Um, there was a, a, a sort of a Caucasian overseer, but otherwise um, they were kind of, you know, watching out and taking care of themselves. And so within that space, they could pretty much do what they wanted. And in fact, um, the one of the a big concern of everyone so the the amachi is located in colorado but it's only it's less than 20 miles away from kansas so it is on the far high plains and it's an area that was actually just coming out of the dust bowl as world war ii started mm -hmm. so when they when they bulldozed that camp they unleashed this fury of sand Hmm. And, um, you know, the wind is kind of always blows on the high plains. And then you add in this, the site is located on, on sort of barely stabilized dunes that then they destabilized through the production of the camp. And so they actually, the, the, um, there was encouragement of um, landscaping. And so in some areas, you know, that were sort of public space that were big and open and didn't have any buildings um, there, they actually uh, planted ryegrass. Uh, the administration did um, or paid people to, you know, internees to do it uh, and maintain it. <clears throat> and uh, there was uh, official sort of landscaping in the camp plan in the administrative area of the mm -hmm. camp. And so uh, the internees were kind of free to do what they wanted to do. Now, there um, and something that's interesting and it's important for people to realize is that even though these are these are, you know, prisons in a way they are they're they've got a barbed wire fence they are have armed guards and guard towers but they're also relatively porous um in that it was pretty easy to get a work pass and mm -hmm. people are working in the farms that are associated with the camp that are that surround it and so there are lots of people who every day are leaving that perimeter Okay. And um, and so when they're out and they're doing their work, they're gathering materials for gardens. So they're picking up um, cobble from the Arkansas River. They are digging up trees. They are finding cool cactus. Um, and this is happening um, sort of in the immediate environs of camp. But then our research has shown that people are actually ranging a much broader, you know, 
30 and 40 miles away, we're finding stones, stones that have to come from at least that far away because we don't have the, you know, the, the, the geological formations are that far away from which mm-hmm. such stones could be reco- recovered. But we know that people are getting passes to work in local on local farms um, uh, that are not part of the kind of project area. And so, um, so they were that, uh, that mobility allowed them to pick up kind of cool stuff that they could come back and bring to the garden. Um, In one instance in particular, there is a a kind of real, uh, like a city park that is next to a Machi town hall. So it was where each block had a manager that they were uh, essentially an elected official. It's like your city councilman. Mm -hmm. And um, where they met in the block where they met, there's this really beautiful garden. And for that garden, the administrative administration actually let them take a truck and go down to the Arkansas River and collect river cobble and plants. Nice. That's cool. Um, it's uh, it's so interesting how how that whole life way worked out there. It's uh, it's kind of amazing they they were able to make something out of you know the situation they were given. Um, you know, it, and it, not that it was pleasant in any way, shape, or form, but that they that they did something with it. Um, we'll get into that a little bit more, and then some of the community uh, community archaeology aspects of what you were doing down there in Grenada when we come back from the break. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, well, we are back from our break to continue our conversation with Dr. Bonnie Clark uh, about her research at Amachi. So, Bonnie, one of the things that I've found really great and interesting about working with your project is the fact that it's blending all of these different communities where we have students coming from multiple universities, we have members of the descendant and former internee Japanese-American community, and we have students and um, community members from the town of Grenada who all work with us. Um, So, it's sort of this really fascinating community archaeology project. So could you talk a little bit about what community archaeology is um, and why it matters in the field of archaeology? Well, you know, I feel like in some ways, I mean, all archaeology or or so much of it is community archaeology, right? I mean, very rarely. (laughs) Yeah, it should be. But I mean, very rarely do we work by ourselves. Mm-hmm. We're working with other people. It's essentially a team project. And the question is, who is on your team? And how can you uh, use that inherently collaborative structure of our of our discipline to its best ability? And so community archaeology is, is I think, just a, a really conscious attempt to 
be thoughtful about how are the different ways that we can incorporate more voices and more different people, and especially the people who have, you know, who really care about this and who have expertise into the work that we do. And so um, with the Amachi Project, it's just so natural because we have you know, we have descendants, We not, not just descendants, which a lot of, you know, archaeology has, but we also have survivors. So we have people who remember this past. And it was always really important to me that this project be respectful um, of and also incorporate people's knowledge so that we're not just kind of starting from scratch. And then, um, and, it, and, and incorporating the local high schoolers is just also so key. First off, it you know, one of the things about community archaeology is then you, by incorporating people, then you have much more, you've got all this support, you know, people who are invested because they've worked with you and they have seen what archaeology can do. And so um, you don't have to argue about why it's important because they see it every day when they do it. And so we have just incorporating the local um High schoolers in particular is great because they know about they know about the local history, they know about the local geology, because a lot of these kids are farm, you know, they're from they're farm kids. And and they've also, because they've been they live with this history and they know it. Um, and they also, really importantly, in terms of managing the materials at the museum, you know, they're the ones who 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 man that museum when we're not there. And so knowing what they do with them and what and what their needs are is really important for us to be to do, you know, a kind of appropriate uh, curation. And so to me, community archaeology, I think we have um, sometimes it's been cast as kind of, well, it's, you know, it's that add on and it's a it's a thing that, you know, makes it look like we've you know, ticked that service box. But to me, community archaeology is good science. It's not just being a good citizen, but the, the more we have all these people involved, the better we do our job, the mm -hmm. more data sources we have access to. And especially if we're concerned about lo the long term preservation of our cultural resources, it's absolutely key. You know, oh, I get a uh, kind of a follow up to that. Amache's, um, the the site itself is pretty much open to the public, right? I mean, you can just drive mm -hmm. up there and go in and check it out, right? Yes, Yeah. absolutely. So that's part of the reason why by, why being open about what we do. And, you know, we have a specific open, we have two open house days every summer, mm -hmm. one of which is really designed for the, the, we advertise it very much locally and we try to get local folks to come in so they can see what we're doing and they can understand why it is that, for example, it matters where an artifact is found, <laughs> right? And that, that, and that, and that's important in a site that's open to the public that we're, people are understanding why they shouldn't be collecting. Um, and also, they, you know, they are, you know, pride in the importance of this site because they, you know, they are its stewards. And then um, we also have a, an open house day that's specifically for people who have a personal or family connection to the camp. Mm -hmm. And something that I've been really proud about is the fact that we draw in, you know, descendants of former internees and, and former internees themselves. But we also draw in descendants of people who worked in the camp, oh my. which is great. You know, people whose parents were teachers, for example, 
And so that is to me important that we are having the kind of dialogue where everybody feels like they have a, a role to play. Mm-hmm. Okay. What is the current status of Amache? You may have said this in the beginning, but I, I can't remember it. What, like what, what is it to, I mean, it's not a, is it a, uh, national site of some significance? I mean, what, I mean, I know it has significance, but what is its official status? Its official status is that it's a national historic landmark. Okay. Uh, but it is still, you know, that doesn't mean that, that it's federally owned. It's just federally recognized. So it is mm. owned by the town of Grenada. Okay. Uh, and so, and they do, you know, they manage it and um, they get some help from the county in terms of like, keeping the roads up, but really it is a labor of love, mm-hmm. um, especially by the high school students who, and their, and their leader, John Hopper, who is the, um, a social studies teacher and now the principal of the school who, you know, makes sure that the grass is mowed at the cemet- at the site cemetery, for example. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that when people come who want to either visit the museum or visit the site, if they, um, especially if they've got a tie to it, that they, um, you know, that, that they're guided through um, mm-hmm. the, the resources. Is there any movement to get it um, federally recognized or owned? Because I, I know, I mean, I lived in North Dakota for five years, and the only thing anybody ever talked about was uh, how all the small towns are getting smaller and smaller and smaller because, you know, kids are getting out, they're going to college, and they're they're realizing that there's a huge wide world out there, and they don't want to live in their small town anymore. So the small towns keep shrinking and shrinking, and... Um, I'm just wondering, I mean, this is this is maintained by the town on a volunteer basis and, and people do all these things. But as those people stop doing that, it, you know, it, it would need some sort of federal recognition. So is there any movement to that direction or even a desire to do that? You know, uh, there is actually and it's it's been interesting as the as the journey has progressed, something that's really critical um, to the site and the reason why the town owns it is because of the water. So, um, you know, anywhere in the West, water is incredibly important. And the War Relocation Authority, you know, there were over 7,000, about 8,000 people who lived at the camp in any one time. Hmm. And so that's a lot of people to, you know, make sure that they have water to shower and to drink. And so there were, were very deep wells that were dug by the War Relocation Authority and so that when the town purchased the camp, they purchased it for the water rights. Hmm. And so um, that has been a sticking issue. But there are now more and more kind of parks that have collaborative agree- uh, agreements with either lo- with local landowners or, or other folks. And so um, once the negotiation, it was clear that the town would be able to maintain their water rights, they have... The, the town, at least, is now interested in pursuing that, and they've been working with um, one of our uh, local congressmen, um, uh, Corey Gardner, mm-hmm. and um, you know that uh, they're hoping to move forward a suggestion of it being um, be, to become a national park service unit. Okay. Uh, there are two other um, historic parks in the region, so there's Bent's Old Fort. And there's also the Sand Creek Massacre. Hmm. Um, and so what it would be is a problem. And those um, those operate jointly. And so probably what would happen with Amachi would join those as the three. And, and it, there is a, a kind of connected history between all of them. Um, interestingly enough, so 
Amache is actually named for Amache Ochini Prowers, who is um, was Cheyenne, and she was married to John Prowers, and the site is in Prowers County. Ah. So it's kind of named, it's in honor of, of her. Um, her father was killed at Sand Creek. Hmm. Okay. And one thing we should quickly clarify too, if you're home and looking up Amachi online, you'll also see it referred to as the Grenada Relocation Center. Um, but because it's a, the relocation center internment camp was called Grenada and a mile from the town of Grenada, the residents, the internees actually decided to change the name and called it Amachi hmm. um, after Amachi Ochini Powers to distinguish between the two communities because they were having problems with things like mail going to the wrong post offices. Um, so if you're home and trying to do more research on this, you can try both <laughs> of those names and that will pull up some different results for you. Uh, and we will have some we will have some links in the show notes as well that you can just uh, click over to this page and 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 find some of this information at least. Yep. Okay, so moving on, um, I'm wondering. Uh, well, first off, just a comment because uh, you know when we drove out to Amache, it's not exactly uh, on the beaten path, if you know what I mean. I mean, southeastern Colorado in general <laughs> is not exactly, you know, a tourist destination for what people would kind of think of, you know, stuff like that. And as a contrast, I've driven up and down Highway 395 um, here in California, Nevada, on the way down to um, Bishop, um, California. It kind of 395 skirts the the eastern edge of the Sierra Nevada mountains. And one place that I pass every time I've done that, and I've done it dozens of times, is Manzanar. And that's another relocation center. And um, I'll tell you what, uh, now this one's proximity to the to a well-traveled highway probably helps it for, um, for people visiting and, and learning about it. But everybody I know that's gone there has just been deeply impacted by that site. And every time you go by there, it doesn't seem to matter what time of year it is, um, there are cars in that parking lot, lots of cars in that parking lot. And it is... I can't remember. It's not a national park, but I know it's in the, I think it's pretty sure it's in the NPS system. And I know that because my wife has a little passport stamp book things you can get from there and Manzanar has a stamp. So it's in their system somehow. Um, but that, uh, that definitely helps drive that designation helps drive traffic there. I'm sure. So people can go and, and learn about it. And I guess it helps for Amache that there are other things in the area as well, because man, is it, uh, it's difficult to get to, isn't it? You've done that drive quite a few times, I'd imagine, Bonnie. <laughs> oh, yeah. I kind of have every landmark uh, memorized on the way. You know, it, it does feel very out of the way, um, mm-hmm. but, but you'd be surprised by how many people come to Amachi. Hmm. Uh, something that really helped, and, and, and this is just for any site manager out there, if you want more people to see your site, make sure there's a sign on the highway mm-hmm. as you're leading up to it. Because for a long time, there was just a sign right at the turn, mm-hmm. and it was just super easy to drive by. And so um, a lot of the the, pe- the county commissioners and the folks in Grenada and then, you know, those of us in Denver, you know, tried to help push it along, was just this, this, this getting the, that official, you know, the brown sign that says it's a historic site on the highway. Mm-hmm. And like with a couple of blocks lead time on either side so that people could slow down right. and turn in. And, um, and Highway 50, although it's not, um, you know, it's a two-lane highway, it's actually a really important, especially for people who are going from like 
Kansas and Texas to California and Arizona. So it is one of those that, you know, if people are doing that kind of blue highways tour of the U.S., they do go through there. And it is, you know, only, uh, you know, less than a mile off of the, off of the highway. So mm-hmm. that, that does um, help to a certain extent. And, um, but yeah, you know, you're right about the, that recognition. Um, you know, certainly Manzanar, what, Manzanar was the first of the 10 of the War Relocation Authority camps to become a Park Service unit. Mm. Um, so they are a National Historic Site. Um, but um, as is now Tule Lake and um, Minidoka in Idaho. Mm-hmm. And then the Park Service, it, it will now be um, working with uh, Honolulu, which is in Hawaii, which is interesting because the Japanese in Hawaii weren't interned on Moss. But there was a prison camp there for um, for nationals uh, that were people who were, you know, they were concerned about them. But right. it was it was uh, people of it was Japanese, Germans and Italians. At ah. Honolulu. Well, I'm sure, you know, with Pearl Harbor and all that, it was a much more tense situation in uh, in Hawaii than than most other places. Yes, but it was also there, you know, a, about a third of the population of Hawaii were were of Japanese descent. And right. so the entire island economy would have fallen apart. <laughs> Plus, there's not the leaders in Hawaii who are calling for the roundup in a way that the leaders on the West Coast of the continental U.S. were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, continuing on a little bit with the, the public archaeology aspect of this thing, um, you know, the Amache website, Amache.org, is is pretty good and has a lot of good information. But is there, you know, because this, uh, because this is so remote, you know, for people to get to, and, and we deal with a lot of archaeological sites, of course, around the world that are remote and difficult to get to. Is there anything on the long term roadmap? I know the funding is probably not there right now, but on the long term roadmap to do any sort of um, virtual things, you know, virtual fly throughs and and things like that that you can interact with Amache. Uh, on the web, because maybe maybe you can't get there. Maybe some of the older um, internees that are still around, or or their descendants, even you know, ch- or even the children that were in the camp, um, which I guess would be the older ones now, uh, you know, can't really go there and visit, but could maybe tour it this way. Is there anything on the long term roadmap for that? Well, I would hope that you know we have we have many many uh, plans. I mean, something that happened this summer um, and that you were uh, involved with. Uh, was that we created, mm-hmm. um, we did, we went to a digital survey database uh, right. with Codify, and we're really excited about the possibilities of a front end with that of where people can see the results of the survey that we did, and they can, you know, for example, you know, appreciate the 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 an ingenuity of the Amache internees by looking at 30 different kinds of homemade coal scoops. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, <laughs> so we, you know, we created that and we're hoping to have a, a, a front end of that. Um, there has been, um, uh, another university, uh, here in town, um, the university of Colorado at Denver just did some LIDAR work. And so, um, that, and I don't know whether or not there's going to be a public front end on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and, um, one of our, um, uh, the, Basically, my math guy, Jim Casey, who does um, G- GIS for us, has just, I haven't yet even put it up on our website, but I will after our conversation, 
uh, has put together. It's a front end. Um, it's from the, the public side of ArcGIS. And if you go in and type in the name of someone, it will show you which barrack they lived in. So okay. we've finally gotten that. And that's been a long time coming. We went through and very carefully groomed the historic documents, found people's names, and then integrated that into our into our site GIS. Hmm. So there's lots of different things that we'd, you know, that we're looking forward to, um, uh, and so you know that we want to make these things more and more available um, for those for exactly those reasons that you're talking about, Chris. Mm -hmm. That not everybody can get down to the site. And that um, there are there are lots of different ways to integrate with the archaeology. You know, something that we always have to be concerned with, of course, is that we are making sure to do this in a way that that is, you know, will protect the site and mm -hmm. and create create that you know site stewardship um, and and not encourage people to go out and say, oh, there's all this cool stuff, let's go out and pick it up. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's good. As we go into break here, I'll, I'll just close with one quick comment because that's we experienced that a lot in uh um in, in the archaeology that i do cultural resource management archaeology where we go to a site and you know it's been heavily looted but we use the term looted disparagingly but it's really just people that went out and were interested in the archaeology and wanted to see the things and didn't know that it was bad or illegal or anything else to pick up the artifact and take it home and put it on their mantle they just it's, it's an education thing so i feel like if we, if we can start by collecting the data the way you're collecting it so we can have that awesome point data on everything digitally right out, right out of the gate and then maybe do some infield and or lab photogrammetry on these objects, then people can actually virtually walk across the Amache landscape and pick, things, pick these things up where they were left and where they were sitting in situ and then manipulate them in 3D space pretty easily just with the mouse on their computer and, uh, and really have a, a personal connection with it without even going there. So... Um, and we can we can finish up that discussion in a couple minutes when we come back from break. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. Well, we are back from our short break. And we were just leaving off talking about kind of engaging communities and also how you do low-impact Field work, um, which is something that the Amati Project and Bonnie have really been working on and partnering with some other groups to figure out how do we collect more and more data in the field while leaving things as we found them, um, which is really important at a lot of sites where you do have an engaged community. So Bonnie, can you tell us a little bit more about some of these methods that you're piloting um, and the impact that you have seen low impact archaeology having on your research? Well, you know, one of the things is that um, 
Again, knowing that this site is a national historic landmark from the get-go, I felt it important. And you know, there were thousands of people who lived at this site. It was the 10th largest city in Colorado during World War II. And I want people to go out there and, and, and have some sense of that. And I think it's really important that we don't mine our archeological sites of all of the data that makes them interesting, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's been a long-term commitment from the very beginning to um, largely leave things in place. And so, um, but we've also got, uh, I mean, it's, it's the, the center of the camp is a mile square. And so what we've done is, you know, a commitment to going in and trying to do systematic pedestrian survey on all of the blocks where the former internees lived, as well as then we've, you know, we've been working at some of the, the public space blocks like where the elementary school was and where the ball field was. And so um, so what that means is going in and doing, and this is where my training, you know, I was a CRM archeologist for a long time. And the thing you do is you count stuff, right? You go in and you're like, okay, what is actually here? So doing that intensive pedestrian survey of really creating a tally for every single block of, um, and we've decided, and, and April was actually part of this that first here as we were piloting this is that we realized because there were these barracks here and then those were dismantled when the camp was um, decommissioned. So the camp is built in um, the summer of 1942 and then it's dismantled um, in the in the uh, late fall, early winter of, you know, of 45 and 46. And so there's all of these things that have to do with the the buildings. And so what we realized is that if we were going to see the things that were the result of internee behavior, we had to kind of stop looking at, at, at architectural remains. And that's, you know, so that was a very specific kind of um, research methodology uh, that's specific to this site. So, so it's, unless something has been, obviously it's a, a modified building material or it's been used in a different way, like we've seen an addition to a building, we basically kind of are not looking at that. So, um, but we we literally have, you know, we tally everything as we go along and then we are flagging items that will basically, you know, the question that we ask our crew is, would it be helpful for us to spend some more time with this? Do we need to, for example, is it a complete enough vessel uh, that we would, you know, be able to know something about what its contents were if we actually took the time to measure it? Um, does it have a maker's mark? Is it modified? And so all of these objects we flag as we go along and then we come back, they are further documented and, um, and then they're photographed. And then if there are some things that we really feel like we need to kind of take them, take them back to the, to the field lab and clean them up and really take you know, much more detailed photographs than we can do in the field, then we do what's called catch and release, just like you know you would a fish, and so those are mapped um, so that we can get them back in case the flag goes away, and then um, we take them back to the field lab, and then we spend a little bit more time with them, and then our collections, the things that we collect for the long term, you know, I mean, uh, we documented over 16,000 surface artifacts that way this summer, and wow. those those are the ones that we actually spent more time with. Um, and we collected, I believe, about 25 surface artifacts. 
out of all of those. Wow. So, and, and those items that we collected are the ones that are going to help us better tell the story of the camps. So they're, you know, sort of they're to, you know, towards the thought of doing, um, doing exhibits, um, mm -hmm. as well as the kinds of things that we know from having talked to locals, um, that are, um, that, that people tend to collect. And so we go in and collect those before someone else can, um, or things that we really feel like we could learn a lot more if we had, if we could spend, you know, additional time with them. And so, um, so that's a very, you know, specifically targeted collection policy to um, to leave most of the things there to record them in situ. And I know that our descendant community really um, appreciates that. And 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 I know that. And I and I really learned these techniques actually from um, uh, Professor Kent Lightfoot, who developed this kind of protocol when he was doing public work um, in California. And so at public and community work there, especially at Fort Ross. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I, I felt that that real commitment to that with and then the other thing that we do that, that's that low impact is that we really made a great use of ground penetrating radar. Mm -hmm. So after we do our intensive survey, let's say we found a, a, what looks like a really interesting garden feature that we might want to do a test excavation on then we do GPR beforehand to make sure that what we think is a garden is a garden and not something else. And that it has, um, you know, that the GPR suggests that it has good physical integrity. And then when we do the archeology, span um, we are, uh, everything is always a test. So um, I think about the things that I'm able to do with landscape archeology. span Phytolith analysis, palynology, soil chemistry, the kinds of things that I can do now, many of them weren't possible 20 years ago. Right. And 20 years from now, there's going to be a lot more that people can do. And so that that soil, especially the garden soil at Amachi, that is an artifact. And that is the result of people who had amazing expertise in growing things and who are in a new environment. And so that soil is very important. And I always want to make sure, first off, I, I, I have a little archive sample for every excavation unit we've done so that if somebody in the future wants to do something that I didn't think of, we have that there. Hmm. Um, the other is that most of those gardens are still intact. And so, you know, all of our excavations are test excavations. Um, and yeah. we, you know, most of most of that site is still is still there. Nice. Well, you know, in in reference to something you mentioned earlier about artifacts and the descendant communities, one thing I thought was fascinating while you were there is that you can tell by some of the things that were left behind. Um, because, well, to back up just a little bit, so you know, people were um, were interned there for, uh, from around the country, right? It wasn't just different locations or even different like neighborhoods, like say a lot of them from Los Angeles and things like that. But you can tell uh, from some of the artifacts that were left behind, like how these communities organized themselves within the camp, um, right? Can you speak a little bit to that? Like some of the stuff you found that says, oh, these, you know, these came from here, these people came from here and things like that. And how you tell that through the artifacts? Well, you know, it, it comes 
it comes out in the artifacts, Chris, but it also re it really does come out a lot in the landscaping. Hmm. Okay. And uh, actually, April, do you want to talk about um, the the about seven H where you led the survey? Because I think that that's a really good example. Yeah. So this is actually part of what my research is really interested in is looking at how communities formed within the internment camps. Um, and so four years ago now, two years ago, a while ago, um, <laughs> we surveyed a residential block 7H. And this was a really interesting block. A lot of the residents were from kind of nor more Northern California in these rural agricultural communities. And we found that there was basically a regimented landscaping plan that went throughout the entire residential block. So in front of in front of a lot of the barracks, we find gardens. But in this block, all of the gardens uh, had trees in the exact same position, um, about, I think it's like two and a half meters from the front of the barrack and on either side of the doorways into the barracks. And it was consistent. And so that tells us that people in this residential block are working as a neighborhood. They're working as a community. And they have agreed to this landscaping plan, and they're allowing it to be implemented, which tells us about people working together, people forming social bonds, um, getting along. And we see this, too, in some of the oral histories and the archive evidence where uh, different residential blocks had clubs. And so there were, you know, young women's clubs that were for specific residential blocks and neighborhoods. Um, and... So you can just sort of picture people learning to meet their neighbors, get along with their neighbors, um, and forming social activities and really creating a community, um, which I think is something that's really interesting and important because we don't we don't think about places like prisons as homes or areas where you can make friendships, where you can have a community that forms. Um, and so this is really interesting to think about. Um, both in terms of kind of the resiliency of people who are living there um, and their ability to take something that's kind of a truly unpleasant situation and turn it into something that's a lot better um, and kind of circumnavigate the system in a little bit of a way. Mm -hmm. So It sounds like, uh, it, it, real quick, it sounds like you can't get away from HOAs no matter what time period you live in. They have. <laughs> it is sounding a little bit like that when we explain it that way. You know? Right. <laughs> Yeah, you will have your trees 2.5 meters away. <laughs> or nice. it could have been, you know, we have some examples where we know that a group uh, went out and got trees mm -hmm. um, from along the Arkansas River for their neighborhood and brought them back and then planted them. Mm -hmm. uh, in which case, you could see something like this kind of standardized design because yeah. it's the same people sort of doing it. So you, we don't really know why that neighborhood, but... <laughs> um, kind of looking at the evidence, it really seems to us like some kind of planning was involved in this. Well, and that's that's not a surprise either, really. My my sense of of Japanese people in general. I actually took Japanese for two years in uh, high school, and uh, my my sense of them. And you, you learn about culture and things like that. And and while I've never been over there um, to Japan, you really get the sense that they're a very, in general orderly and organized and, and like things a certain way, you know, um, type of people. I mean, even the, the Japanese gardens in Seattle is, is very much like that. We would go there a number of times and, uh, I really like it cause that's kind of how I try to be too. <laughs> so I would have, I would have thrived in that sort of environment, you know, the, the Japanese culture sort of thing. So, um, and it's really neat to see that, 
you know, even though they were in a, even though they were in a terrible situation, you know, they still, they still tried to, you know, bring that personal aspect to it and, and be as much of themselves as they, as they possibly could. And yeah, I'm, I'm going to jump in here. And I, to me, that is in many ways, that's the, the, that's kind of the most important story that we can tell Adamachi and that the archeology span really shows us is how people came together and how they, how they got on with the business of living. And they did so in a way that, that mm-hmm. insistently, like they insisted on their own dignity and on the dignity of their identity as Japanese, you know, at a time when that was not, you know, something that um, was appreciated by their neighbors outside of the camp. Mm-hmm. It was something that they were not trying to hide in camp. And in fact, were were really in many ways sort of celebrating. And so, um, you know, that kind of humanity in the in the face of, a, of inhumane conditions is something that the archaeology brings, um, really brings to light. Right. And all that being said, we don't want to, we don't want to make it sound like, you know, life was great there, that they loved it. I mean, when they closed that camp, I mean, people scattered and went back to where they were came from, I would imagine. They didn't, uh, they didn't hang out for any longer than they had to, probably. No, although some people, again, because the, the laws were such that if you were a in many of the the Western states, uh, mm-hmm. if you were a if you were a first generation Japanese, you were not allowed to become a citizen, mm-hmm. and so in many states you were not also allowed to own land, and mm-hmm. so pe- many people were tenant farmers, and so they had lost their farms, uh, and so then they didn't have much to go back to, and so people had made friends in Colorado and made connections. And so a number of people, yeah, stayed, whereas others were, were either lucky enough to go back to their family farms or they went back home and, and really, you know, recreated their lives. Um, yeah, so I, it's important not to think of this as a, you know, a sort of shiny, happy place. But I do think that it's it, it does tell us that, you know, you don't have to give up when people are oppressing you and 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 that and you also don't have to burn things down i mean to me i i love the grace of the fact that you have been displaced and you are imprisoned and what do you do you make art you make things that are beautiful you make things that um that that uh, that connect you to nature i mean it's it's a fantastic uh example of of how how people can do positive things in negative situations. Mm-hmm. Well, we're about to wrap up, Bonnie. Is there anything that uh, that we didn't ask you that you want to mention, or that you just want listeners to take away from this, uh, from listening to this podcast? I, I don't. I don't necessarily think so. I just would say that um, you know there are there are over a hundred sites that are related to the confinement of Japanese Americans during mm-hmm. World War II, and they need to be protected. And you and where, if there are people in the U.S. who are listening to this, you're probably not very far from one of these. Mm-hmm. And so, um, again, and not just that, but the legacy of the World War II home front is something that we should be, um, that we should be protecting and, and doing study on and um, 
I, I fully believe that 20th century archaeology is archaeology worth doing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, thanks a lot, Bonnie, for coming on. And uh, please be sure to check out uh, the links in our show notes to, to go see some of these places and, uh, and at least virtually see them online and then, you know, maybe go visit them in person. So, again, thanks a lot, Bonnie. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArcPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. This show is edited by Christopher Sims of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. Go check it out. Check out our next episode in two weeks. And in the meantime, keep learning, keep discovering new things, and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day. The song I Wish You'd Look by Sea Hero was provided with special permission. Go check them out at seahero.bandcamp.com. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.